Hello, and welcome to Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm James Allgood, one of today's co-hosts. I'm in product marketing for Ignite, a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome two guests today from iPoint Pharmaceuticals, Nancy Lurker, their CEO, and Saeed Sain, iPoint's Senior VP and Chief Technology Officer. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Rahul. Thank you. So to start, Nancy, would love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today, and then we'll hand it over to Saeed to do the same. Yeah, certainly. So I have my undergraduate in biology and chemistry and then a master's in business administration. I've been in the industry for 30 years, and it was just fortuitousness that I landed in pharma first many, many years ago. But you know, if I was to say one of the things that I think served me well as time went on was that I was always very driven and very clear about what my goals were. Now, if you take me back, you know, when I first started, my goal was just to be able to do well and make it to a vice president level. Well, ultimately, obviously now I've been, this is my third CEO job and I've sit on multiple boards as well. I think I always was able to look at different skills I could gather as I went from different jobs And I think that's always important. The broader you can make your skill set, the more successful you can be. So I started out as a sales rep and then finished my MBA at night. And then I made it clear to my boss that I wanted to go into marketing. So I had to prove myself, which I did. And then I kept gently kind of pounding the drum. I want to go into marketing. Ultimately, they wanted to keep me happy because I had done well. So they moved me into marketing. And that was at Bristol Myers Squibb. And I was there for 14 years. Like a lot of companies, sometimes you just hit a career trajectory. At the time, after 14 years, I was really stalling in my career. And sometimes as well, companies can pigeonhole you. I could tell I was getting pigeonholed. Basically, I just said, you know what? It's time for me to move on. I'm getting blocked. Politics come into play sometimes. So I said, it's just time for me to move on, start fresh somewhere else. And so I did. So I had an opportunity then to go to Pharmacia. I got a big promotion out of that as a vice president for what was called Global Therapeutics. It was really the primary care products and to launch one of their big drugs, Detrol. So I took over that brand, launched that globally, and then also in the US. And then from there, I, I was promoted to run all global therapeutics on the primary care side. Then we got bought out by Pfizer. Going to Pfizer wasn't an option, and this is no knock on Pfizer, but Pfizer, when they buy a company, they don't want the senior management, which is fine. So I had several opportunities. I could have stayed in Big Pharma at that point in time, but I really wanted to be a CEO. So I looked and looked and looked, and you know, in all candidness back then, it was tough for women to get C-suite jobs. It just was. It just was the reality. Ultimately, a lot of people turned me down. And I ultimately ended up taking a job that was really, I would say, probably beneath my skill sets, but I thought it gives me a chance to get CEO on my resume. So I took that job working for a small VC-backed syndicated market research company. The good news was there was a great board of directors there that I was able to develop a lot of great connections with, turned that company to profitability. And then after three years, Novartis came knocking. 
I decided at that point that I'd got my C-suite under my belt and I went in as chief marketing officer at Novartis. I did that for a couple of years. At that time as well with Novartis, they made some organization changes. They wanted me to go out and run a country. I didn't want to do that at the time, some family issues. I had young kids. I didn't want to go off and run a foreign country. So I decided to stay and went to my next CEO job running a contract sales organization, PDI, did that for seven years, ultimately sold off the contract sales part of the business, did have a small molecular diagnostic business. And at that point, I left the company. It was now in good hands. Then I got recruited into iPoint Pharmaceuticals. And by the way, I might add, after PDI, I was going to retire. So I took probably about eight months off and then a recruiting call came in when I look at this job. By then, I was actually getting bored So I decided to look at that opportunity and was really impressed with the drug delivery technology that iPoint has, and I was ready for my next challenge. So I took this opportunity. It's been fantastic. I would say, you know, talking to people about this, one of the things, again, that I do often is I take time to reflect. I let myself change my mind. I take prudent risks, and I always try to broaden my skill set. That has served me well over my career. And then also I've had the opportunity to sit on a number of boards over the years and you learn from that as well. Some point down the road, I'd be happy to talk about board seats and how you move into a board role because it really does open your eyes up to how different companies operate, get just exposed to different ways of doing things as well. Excellent. Thank you, Nancy. And Saeed, over to you for your background. My big break, frankly, was coming to this country a couple of decades ago, let's just say so, uh, not to age myself too much. <laughs> I did get my bachelor in, in chemical engineering, and frankly, I'm a chemical engineer at heart. I'm an engineer at heart and went for my master's as well as my PhD in chemical engineering. I was on a national scholarship. I could have gone to any university. I selected Kansas University because I come from a farming background, and I wanted to go to a place where I could see myself living for a few years. So I I did my PhD there in chemical engineering, and I got an opportunity to work under Val Stella at the Higuchi Bioscience Center. Val is is an eminent pharmaceutical scientist, and uh, and I really learned a lot from him as well as from my uh, PhD professor, Bala Subramaniam. So he introduced me to uh, product development, brought to my attention how, as an engineer, I could really make a difference in the development of products value-added products for treating diseases. So that was my first introduction into the field of pharmaceutical development. From then, uh, I went to Bering-Engelheim in Connecticut, where uh, I stayed there for 12 years, and I moved through the ranks to become the leader of the process development and technology transfer for North American products. And we developed Vermune, which is a drug for AIDS, as well as other products. From there, I moved on to a smaller company where I wanted to help bring new products and be a little bit more impactful in my role. And I moved to Collegium Pharmaceutical. At the time, the development branch of Collegium was maybe five or six people. And by the time I left in 2019, we were about 300 people, as I said before. The company became public, basically, and I decided to move on to iPoint at that time to have even further impact and hopefully help build iPoint into a large pharmaceutical company, just like I helped with Collegium Pharmaceutical. At iPoint, I've been here a little over two years, and it's been a really exciting ride. Uh, iPoint is kind of special in the sense that it has unique technologies 
that other companies don't have. It has unique technologies that are just right for addressing problems that many companies have and would like to see solved. Talking a lot of companies that want to deliver products, want them to be effective for as long as they can. We're talking about targeting a six-month efficacy, and iPoint happens to have that technology. So I'm really excited about being in a position to support the development of new and exciting products for retinal diseases. Thanks, Saeed. So knowing iPoint's focus, what is it about macular degeneration and what's exciting about treating wet AMD right now? So one of the things going on in this disease, first of all, it's a very serious eye disease. It's one of the leading causes of blindness. Unfortunately, there are a large number of people who suffer from this, and it is age-related. So as the baby boomer population continues to age, the numbers just keep growing. Uh, Worldwide, there's millions of people who suffer from these, what we call retinal diseases, such as wet AMD. Another one would be called diabetic macular edema, retinal vein occlusion. These are all diseases that are driven in large part, not exclusively by VEGF, which is a common protein and enzyme that drives the proliferation of blood vessels. Now, we all need that because your blood vessels, capillaries, et cetera, need to regenerate, but at times they can run amok. And oftentimes you see in cancer, these anti-VEGF, they call them anti-VEGF. Drugs are used to stop tumor growth because tumors need a blood supply to continue to grow and proliferate. And the same thing in these eye diseases, what happens is you get a proliferation of these microcapillaries and they can grow and leak. And that is what can cause vision blindness or losing your eye vision, either partially or completely. So what's going on is it's a growing disease. It's a serious disease. It leads to blindness. Nobody wants to go blind. And we need new treatments that can treat these really awful eye diseases. The biggest issue is there's very, very effective drugs on the market today. The problem is they have to get injected into the eye once a month or once every two months. You do see a large pipeline of trying to get these drugs either extended out or different types of drugs delivered where we are in drug delivery technologies that can deliver these drugs over a much longer period of time so that patients don't have to keep coming in and having their eyes injected with needles which in and of itself can cause scarring of what we call the sclera. That's not healthy, obviously, for eyes. And in addition, who wants to go get their eye injected every month or every other month for the rest of your life? And they don't. We know that from the large databases, they don't. And so these diseases continue to progress. So what everybody's trying to do is trying to get to where we can deliver these effective medications, but over a much longer period of time. So that's what I would say is probably the most exciting thing available right now is getting these very large, unfortunately, diseases with a lot of patients with a high unmet need and getting these drugs delivered over an extended period of time. Said, I'm going to ask you to comment on it as well, because you're at the forefront of us doing this with our Duracert technology. Yes, I think you said it pretty much all, Nancy. I would just add that technologies to deliver over extended periods with proteins, which are the current anti-VEGFs, are very difficult to develop as delivery technologies. We have a technology that delivers also an anti-VEGF, but as a small molecule over a period that we can modulate from six months to a year as a bioerodible formulation. That's where we come in as an innovative product 
to overcome some of the issues that Nancy has just mentioned. Great. Thanks, Aid. And so for both of you now, would love to better understand iPoint's pipeline now that we've covered some of the differentiating factors and what's next for iPoint. So the most compelling right now is our drug in phase one called EYP-1901. And that is potentially once every six month delivery of an anti-VEGF, as Said mentioned. It's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which is a small molecule in our Duracert drug delivery technology, which provides zero order kinetics. That means it's the same amount of drug gets released every day, as opposed to often you see what's called first order kinetics. And I'm going to let Said elaborate more on that. He certainly can explain that much better than I can, but there's a lot of advantages to zero order kinetics. That's one of the things so compelling about Duracert is that it provides this steady, consistent delivery of drug, as opposed to these big boluses that deliver a large amount of drug at once, and then it drops down. You have to then administer another large amount of drug. And so it's that pulsing of drug back and forth that's theoretically not healthy for the eye. The other thing about Duracert is we've had four products FDA approved using our Duracert technology. Now we've tinkered at some with each one, and there's been advancements each time. It's become more miniaturized. Now we're developing bioerodable form, but it's the same basic technology and it's remarkably safe for the eye. As you can imagine, delivering drug into the eye is very complex. It is not easy. And I can't tell you the companies that have not succeeded with these drug delivery technologies in the eye. It's hard. It's not easy. So having one like Duracert that's been approved over four different FDA approved drugs, and we estimate about 70,000 patients have had Duracert in their eye now. And it really has a remarkable safety profile. So we like that, that it's proven. And we believe that our odds are quite good that we'll be successful with EYP-1901. Never a guarantee. We're in phase one. I'm going to put all the caveats around that because again, drug development's hard, but we're in phase one for a once every six month, potentially wet AMD treatment. So you only have to get injected once every six months with a bioerodable implant utilizing this tyrosine kinase inhibitor, which also, by the way, went all the way through phase two in humans orally. The problem with these TKIs is that like a lot of TKIs, they have systemic side effects, which is why, again, you want to try to deliver these drugs into the eye directly and not systemically. And verolinib is the name of the TKI, showed good efficacy treating wet AMD delivered orally. But again, unfortunately, they had to stop development because it had these known systemic toxicities. So we like our odds. It's a huge category, a lot of unmet need. You know, and if this works, we got a potential blockbuster on our hands. That's great, Nancy. Drug delivery to the back of the eye has certainly been a challenge now for decades. So it certainly sounds like a very exciting pipeline with some unique technology that you all have been developing. So that's great. You've also been pursuing partnerships over the last couple of years. And to start off, we'd love to better understand what excites you about partnerships and how you approach partnerships, and then obviously get into the details with who you're partnering with? Well, one of the things we've done is we've partnered, of course, XUS, and I think a lot of companies do do that. We're actually quite pleased with our partnerships in China. So we've developed a partnership with Occumention, and they've been a terrific company to work with, I might add. And they have rights to our two products that are FDA-approved, Utique and Dexacue. Those are on the market in the U.S. Utique, again, uses our Duracert technology for the treatment of posterior, back of the eye, uveitis, again, a very serious inflammatory disease. And that Duracert technology lasts for three years in the back of the eye. 
So these patients have the potential for going up to three years with no additional steroid eye treatment. That again is another remarkable drug. And then we also have DEXIQ, which is for the prevention of post-ocular surgery inflammation. So obviously, if you're going to do surgery on the eye, you're going to end up with potentially inflammation. So they often give steroids to prevent that. We market this primarily for cataract surgery, and we outlicense both those drugs to Occumention for China. That is, again, potentially very, very large market over there. And uh, we got a great relationship with Occumention. Then we also developed a partnership with Equinox. They actually have given us rights to Ferrolinib, which was their tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we in license to use in EYP-1901. We also have other partnerships where companies come to us and they want us to use their API in our Duracert technology. We can't name who they are, but I'm actually going to turn it over to Saeed because he is on the forefront of leading these partnerships. Saeed, why don't you take that discussion point? Yes. As I said, we have a unique technology. It's the only validated technology. When you're talking about the Duracell technology, that can actually deliver zero order, meaning constant, consistent drug release rate that we can modulate from six months to three years. Having four products on the market obviously makes us known in the industry. And we have a lot of companies coming to us with their products, wanting them to be uh, incorporated into the Duracell technology. So we have an ongoing collaboration with a company that has a glaucoma compound. We've done some initial development and we're getting ready to go into preclinical with that. We have other companies coming to us with different modes of action, also for wet AMD that can be used either on their own or in combination synergistically with anti-VEGFs. So we're looking at that too. So lots of opportunities to use our Duracell technology, as well as potentially the Verisome technology with other products. Thank you, Saeed. I'm curious to hear from both of you. There's been lots of chatter over the last decade or so around partnerships and the benefits of partnerships. I'm curious to hear how you think that landscape has changed around partnerships and why more companies seem to be partnering nowadays than let's say a decade ago? Oh, that's an easy one. It's risk mitigation. (laughs) This is a risky business we're all in and it takes a lot of capital. So you wanna spread your risk out. And by the way, I forgot to mention another very important partnership. We have a partnership with Harrow Health, their subsidiary is Imprimis, and they co-promote our Dexacu drug. So partnerships, first of all, number one, let me say this. Through my whole career, I've done a lot of partnerships. They are not easy because you have personalities that come into play. So I've heard many people say, I don't ever want to do a partnership. And I say, au contraire, you want to consistently be looking at partnerships. Not for everything is it the right thing to do, but oftentimes it can help in a number of different ways. Let me take, in fact, our Imprimis partnership. Now that's on the commercial side. That's with Dexacq. But DexiQ was going slower than we liked with the launch. And so we know we needed to get a bigger footprint. We were capital constrained. And so we were willing to give up some of our profits in exchange to get faster revenue growth, whereby we would not have to fund the cost because we couldn't continue to fund the cost as a small company. So we partnered with Imprimis. They get some of the revenues and some of the profits But for us, we don't have to put the capital out to expand the commercial footprint. So it's been worth the trade-off. They've done a fantastic job. We're very, very pleased with that co-promote. 
key to a successful co-promote is you have to communicate. It is up and down the hierarchy from the CEO all the way down to the sales reps. But you have to both have that commitment that you're going to communicate and work out the issues that are going to naturally come up. On the clinical development side, it's the same thing. It's risk mitigation. So as I said, this is a highly, highly risky business. And if you can spread your risk, it gives you the opportunity, number one, to get more shots on goal, as well as get more insights. We don't know everything. We need to come up with partners that we can collaborate together on, sharing of technologies back and forth, new ideas, but then also risk mitigate. So Saeed, I'm going to let you speak up because you're living this day in and day out with a number of our partners. Yeah. The, the, the way I see it is when you're a small company like iPoint, you're either probably going to be, at least early in your growth, you're either going to be in the development side or on the research side of it. So it's only natural for us as a development company to seek partnerships with companies that have new molecules. A lot of times these new chemical entities, new molecular entities come from small research companies that come up with an exciting mode of action and an exciting new compound. And they wouldn't have the capabilities we have here at iPod. We're kind of unique in the sense that we actually can take a compound from start to finish. We have a lot of depth in our know-how. We're actually pioneers in the development of many of the manufacturing procedures for ocular products. So a lot of times we find ourselves talking to partners just because there's synergy between our development capabilities and their research capabilities. That's interesting. Thank you. I wanted to shift gears a little bit here and ask you, what does the landscape look like for the future of ophthalmology and innovative treatment delivery methods? Well, let me start out by saying that it's an exciting future, but it really is. 30 years in, you look back and it's remarkable the progress that's been made in medicine and in the pharma biotech industry. But when you look forward as to what's coming, I mean, it's incredible. And our ability to look at, you know, the genetic drivers of disease is just growing exponentially. And then being able to come up with different ways to deliver these into the eye. So whether it's gene therapy, and there are gene therapy companies now looking at these, first of all, genetically driven diseases, and then you have diseases that are more environmentally driven, but might have a genetic component that predisposes you. So you can help mitigate the severity of the disease. So I think all those things certainly are on the horizon. Unfortunately, right now today in the short term, some, not all, but some of the gene therapy companies, it's been a little harder because the, the drug delivery around gene therapy is not easy. So there's been starts and stops. So as you look at that, then how do we bridge that gap until we are able to really get to the heart of the etiology of these diseases? interim, which probably is another five to 10 years at least, what are the things we need to do to make sure we deliver drugs to the eye more safely and not as difficult for patients? So again, I'm going to come back to certainly what we're looking at is, are there ways we can deliver large molecules into the eye? Are there ways we can make our implant smaller, extend out even further the drug delivery portion of it and make it more amenable to different types of APIs, active ingredients? Saeed, I'm going to turn it over to you. There are a lot of unmet needs in our industry. The wet AMD, you're talking about millions of patients who need better medication, who don't need to be coming to the doctor's office every month to be injected. 
there's a big need there, and uh, not only in WebMD, but in diabetic retinopathy, RBO, uh, DME. These are all opportunities that need to be addressed. And I think it's exciting to be with a company like iPoint that has the ability to do something about it. So we're working really hard as an organization to bring new innovative medicines and delivery technologies to help alleviate these issues. Thank you both. I agree that it is a very interesting point in time for ophthalmology drug development right now, given how much focus other therapeutic areas have had historically and how much unmet need there is with this aging population across the world right now. Nancy, going back to something that you said at the onset of the podcast, you alluded to the fact that the number of opportunities for women in biotech has changed over the course of your career. And I wanted to come back to that point. And looking forward, where do you think more change needs to happen on that front across our sector? What are, what are you hopeful for? Well, look, like everything, what I would like to see is more women and people of color advance into senior leadership. I think we've actually made great progress at the entry levels and the middle management level. The problem is at the senior levels and at the board of director levels. That's where the problem still resides. And I want to add another thing, getting companies founded by women who VCs will back. That's another big area. You know, it's better by all means, it's better, but it's not where it needs to be. Look, there's two things to that. Number one, I think the VCs are certainly start trying to make more of an effort, and I applaud them for that. Finance still is largely a man's world. It just is. I mean, I see when I go on Wall Street all the time, it's a tough business. There's no doubt about it. But I think the VC community in particular has got to make a greater effort to fund women and people of color-backed businesses and mentor them. Mentor them. It's not easy, right? That's number one. Number two, certainly the boards of directors of companies and the C-suite needs to make a greater effort to mentor the people in their companies and bring them up and promote them, as well as reach out to those communities and encourage them to go into the STEM fields. Look, STEM can be intimidating to a lot of people. I think there still is that image sometimes of STEM is, you know, tech, tech is kind of cool. STEM is still kind of geeky. Right. So, but honestly, I, I love science. But I, as I say to people, I was not the smartest person in the room in college. I was smart, but I wasn't that smart. And so you don't have to be the smartest person in the room to do well in STEM. And I think it's encouraging people that give it a try. You don't have to be the A plus student. You can get an undergraduate degree and still do well in STEM. Go get your master's degree in business. You can marry the two together and do very, very well. But we all have to make an effort to encourage people of color and women to stick with it and then give them encouragement, mentor them, develop them, and promote them. We still have a big gap to go, but I'm certainly committed to trying to make that happen. Wonderful. Thank you, Nancy. On that inspirational note, thank you both Nancy and Saeed for sharing the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at iPoint. It was great to have you on and wishing you and your team continued success. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.